know, that's that's what pop culture is about. You know, it's layers. Well, I do think we're on a downward spiral for sure. <laughs> Everyone decided the midriff no longer needed clothing. Right. And it needs clothing. Hello and welcome to the Waterstones podcast. I'm Will Rycroft and this week we're immersing ourselves in culture. Edging away from the scientific meaning of the word, we're going to be diving into a sea of music, film, art and clumsy metaphors to see whether culture really can provide us with nourishment of the spiritual kind. We'll be hearing from cultural icon Debbie Harry, cultural commentator Gia Tolentino and here in the studio we are joined by a genuine culture vulture in the form of Richard Ayoade. Welcome, Richard. Okay, I really felt you went down the <laughs> the, the order of importance there. Not and at all. No, I, I think rightly. A, a culture a catastrophe, I thought you were going to get, or just uncultured, the uncultured. <laughs> the uncultured yes. Richard Iwari. Yes, it, it, was a, it was a slide into bathos, I felt. <laughs> that was what was good about it. Last time I spoke to you, Richard, was about your book, The Grip of Film. Yes. Which gave me the opportunity to watch Patrick Swayze's Roadhouse. Roadhouse. Yes. And I'm interested that you go for Patrick's wages rather than Rowdy Herrington's Roadhouse. Well... Which is how I've... That's how you see it. Well, I see Herrington as an author, but, you know, <laughs> you, you're, you're from the star system. I'm afraid I only have eyes for Patrick Swayze. Well, who doesn't? Um, and now with your new book, I Worry on Top, yes. you've given me the opportunity of watching View from the Top. Yes. Starring Gwyneth Paltrow, but yes. you would probably say... Paltrow? Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't... Let's call the whole thing off. We always have a pronunciation thing, don't yes, we? Yes, I don't know. Is it Paltrow? I don't know. Paltrow sounds like poultry. Yeah. Mm. Is that bad? I don't know. I don't think she'd like that. Gwynny no. Chicken. Um, uh, and who, who's the... It's Bruno Barreto is Bruno the director. Barreto, yes. Do you see him as an auteur as well? I do, yes. Um, if you've seen One Tough Cop, I don't know whether either of you have seen that. No. Well, it's a very brave film. Uh, Stephen Baldwin as a mafia member is interesting. He or he always looks like he has just done a fart and is enjoying the smell. <laughs> That's the expression I feel Stephen Baldwin has mastered. Yeah, it's good to have that on your CV. Yes. I always think of Stephen Baldwin as being the wrong Baldwin. You know, because there are several Baldwin there brothers that Baldwins. you could book. Alec Baldwin. Yeah. William Baldwin. Yeah. Um, who's the one? That, there's one in Vampires. Maybe he's... Daniel Baldwin. Yeah, I think Daniel there's, Baldwin. There's one that's so low down the list that I really, you can't even remember his name. Please, let's not pick between Baldwins. <laughs> but Stephen Baldwin, I've always quite enjoyed. Yeah. He he always yeah. There's something quite wet about him, as in literally his skin seems like either it's been drizzling, or more likely he's just come from a sauna and okay. been asked to leave. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that to get ourselves warmed up, although I feel we're pretty warmed up with the Baldwins already, we could sort of think about sharing our that idea of those films that are so bad they're good. We'll get to top, obviously, in, sure. in a moment. Yes. But Holly, do you want to maybe share your, your pick for a, a film that's just so awful that you love it? I can't say it without just feeling so ridiculous. There was a film that came out in maybe it was... It was either 2006 or 2008, and you can probably correct me, but called RV. And it was an American film right. featuring Robin Williams and Jojo, pop star, okay. about a family who go on an RV road trip through America. It is just such a catastrophe of a film. It's just bloody brilliant, and I can never stop watching it. Oh, you've watched it more than <laughs> so once? So many times. But yeah. you know it wasn't released in 2007. Yes. That's what I like about yes. that. It was it's definitely one of the 2006 evens. or 2008. <laughs> yes. 
I'm going to bring to the table Under the Cherry Moon, which is a, a film made by Prince. Okay. And Under the Cherry Moon is a kind of like French set 1920s style black and white thing. It's just all wrong. Every part right. of it is wrong. But what I love about it is that Prince is actually hilarious in it. He's genuinely funny. And it also stars Stephen Burkhoff and Kristen Scott Thomas. Right. Two, you know, stalwarts of the British film industry yes. who should be able to act Prince off the screen, but who are both really genuinely awful in this film. Right. Worse than him. Worse than Prince. Worse than Prince. Okay. Um, and that's why I love the film, is that even in this, what can only be considered a vanity project, um, he's still not the worst thing in it. Uh, Richard, should we go straight to Top, or is there another film that you would like to mention? Well, you know, I don't view Top as so bad it's good. I, I view it as so bad it is itself. Um, <laughs> so it's almost beyond, I think, almost qualitative judgments, uh, Top. It, it really is something that I feel that once you see it as a film, you really question all semiotics. What do any of these things mean? Why, why are people so strangely old when they're meant to be teenagers? Why is Gwyneth Paltrow playing someone blue collar? Yeah. Why is she interested in becoming an air stewardess um, in order to become very rich when it's one of the few professions that is non-hierarchical? I mean, you can't get higher than being an air stewardess. <laughs> with, I mean, it's a strata. Yeah. I mean, it really is a ceiling there. That's it. W- once you're there. I don't know how you can progress past that, particularly if your aim is to become rich specifically. And it's very uh, strange. In in the film, um, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Donna Jensen, is um, <laughs> is very upset. She's had a bad breakup. She's broken up with Tommy Boulay, who's the uh, high school quarterback. Um, when she recovers from this, she decides to go to a bar and she sees Sally Weston, who is a lifestyle coach now, but a former stewardess. She's a stewardess lifestyle coach, which seems very specific. Very specific. Narratively. And she decides to become like Sally Weston, who's wildly rich from this. But of course Sally Weston hasn't become rich from being an air stewardess. She got rich from meeting someone on a plane, (laughs) which seems a strangely unfeminist message from a film that slightly tries to position itself as a feminist fable. Even with the skimpy stewardess outfits, which feature quite strongly. These outfits are too small, Yes, <laughs> I'd say. Yeah. Um, there was a time in the 90s when it felt like there was a fabric shortage. <laughs> there was a lot of midriff. I blame Britney. Yeah. Like, it was no one... Everyone decided the midriff no longer needed clothing. Right. And it needs clothing. It really does. I um, have not really slept since I uh, saw this film. There's something about it where I felt, okay, well, this is... No one making this film feels this is their last film. Okay. And this is interesting. Ingmar Bergman said you should make each film as your last. This film feels like the kind of film people went on their way to film another film. And I thought, well, what would happen if you took this really seriously? I know you're not meant to take it seriously... Um, you're not meant to take romantic comedies or films that you watch in uh, on airplanes uh, seriously. But what if you really f- went, okay, every single thing in this film was intentional and everything was the thing that they wanted to say and that when, for example, Mike Myers decided to play his character cross-eyed, that that was a decision born of humanity 
and not one because he went, how do I liven up this script? Yeah. Um, and I just thought that would be interesting, and in it it has the conceit is that this is the film of my life. So it has analysis of the film, but I don't think you really need to watch the film to read the book, simply because you already know what's in this film. She's an air stewardess. Do you think she becomes an air stewardess? Yes. In, yeah, she wants to be an air stewardess. She becomes one. She meets Mark Ruffalo. Do you think they end up together? Hell yes. Yeah, they end up together. <laughs> Does it, do they die? <laughs> no, they do not die. Is she happy at the end? Yeah. Does she make a couple of uh, small life discoveries, but not so bad that she's actually a bad person? Tick. This is the film. You've seen this film. Um, Is there a very pleasing soundtrack with sound alikes to avoid extra expense so that they can pass the savings on to you? (laughs) Yes. So Wait, Don't Stop Believing's in there, but it's not... No, it's by the cover band Escape, one of the best Journey cover bands in the business. You do, you do share a little bit about your, your own life in this book. I feel as yes. though I've, I have spent Christmas with the I Want It's because you yes. describe Christmas and, and your, your mum in particular, her sort yes. of attitude to Christmas. Um, we had a very intense Christmas. There's only three of us um, in the house. Uh, Christmas, a lot of it was to do with cleaning and making sure that the house was clean enough so that you could enjoy fun. And once it was really clean, then we could eat. And we had a very strange menu. My mother was Norwegian, my dad was Nigerian. Um, So he had a lot of bean-based requirements, which he'd put flaked chilies on. And she um, had pork and also sometimes dried fish. And so we'd have those things together, which seemed an unusual uh, constellation of food. And also my mum really started baking biscuits for Christmas. That was a very important thing, early, um, around October, November. And very early. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and then she'd put the various biscuits, uh, white biscuits, it's just a, a white, it's made from white, and then <laughs> a ginger biscuit, which was yellow, and um, a Christmas biscuit, which I think was just um, condensed cinnamon. And... <laughs> You had to get through, say, eight Tupperware, large Tupperware mm. boxes of these um, a month. Okay. You, you just had to get through these biscuits. Yeah. And she just go, I've made too many biscuits. <laughs> um, but we, we got through those. And so mainly a lot of Christmas was just managing insulin. <laughs> so that was our Christmas. It, there was no talking at Christmas. My dad arrived at the table when the food was there and then as soon as he'd finished he left and and just went back to watch the news um not in a bad way um we realized there was nothing to say we knew each other what are we going to say to one another yeah i mean what's different it was very pleasant this sounds sadder than it is (laughs) or maybe it was sad and i don't realize it's a note of pathos sort of creeping in here I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> I had my own space. I had a variety of foods to choose from on the plate. <laughs> and a lot of sugar. Yeah. Mm. What, what does a child want at Christmas? This wasn't a problem, sugar, in the 80s. No. Everyone was very happy. It was a superfood. <laughs> okay, so we're going we're gonna to move on now. We're going to hear from uh, another one of our authors. There aren't actually many people who can claim to be a proper cultural icon. We mentioned Prince earlier. Thank you. We put him in that ca- you know, category. Oh, sorry, I think. you're talking about someone else. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Um, but our, our next author definitely deserves this accolade. As lead singer of the band Blondie, Debbie Harry is the voice of some of the catchiest pop hooks ever. But her memoir, Face It, proves that she's more than just a front woman. Um, I spoke to her about her early days in New York and the cultural boom that was happening in those years. We f- were focusing primarily on being different than what was being uh, played on American radio and uh, sort of getting away from the strictly blues-based kind of rock and roll and, you know, bringing back something that was actually pop, more pop, but adding, you know, more modern technology perhaps, uh, you know, a more (laughs) ironic perspective, lyrically, you know, including that. And so that's really, really what it was about. It's like food, you know, you want to try, you want to go a little Mexican, you want to go a little Japanese, you want to go a little Italian, and that's that's the beauty of living in a, in a city like, like London or like New York and um, many other places. So, uh, yeah, it's there, it's juicy, it's wonderful, you know, it gives you a fresh perspective and you, you know, can put your own twist on it. I honestly think, you know, Rapture, was called a rap, but it's not really a rap. It was an homage to rap. And I think that the the real genius of it was that it 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 broke it actually helped break rap into the consciousness of the public and, and really make it it's an institution now. Mm. You know, it really is a wonderful thing. Um I, I think it, it did have its uh, a lot of um, genesis in jazz. So, you know, that's, that's what pop culture is about, you know, it's layers. And as in a lot of tradition in rock, uh, the artists were actually art students as well. It was kind of a, a unique period in the fact that there was so much variety and, uh, you know, I mean, talking heads were so different from Johnny Thunders and the Voidoids and you know television we we all had sort of our own path or insight and that sort of variety is something you've kept out through throughout your whole career because you you haven't just simply been the, the front woman of a band you have been an actress you've been involved in the arts you've been involved in fashion i have i guess i have a pretty strong sense of adventure and um i like i like learning i like new things i like you know discovery so uh, I, I can't honestly say that uh, I'm an actor's actor, but uh, I, look, I like the process. And I've been very fortunate to work with some incredible directors. Uh, David Cronenberg, uh, a, a real individual, uh, starting out with these very strange biomorphic you know, ideas. And uh, then John Waters, who is an assault on... <laughs> Uh, proper behavior, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is a, his idea of what social, um, proper social activities is a lot different than was going on at the time. But has he has evolved to be more a part of you know our our thinking and our you know our daily lives actually. Another part of the culture that you were part of is the art scene, and obviously you had a very clear collaboration with. Andy Warhol. What what was it like to be part of that? Well, Andy Andy had he epitomized that kind of genius of, 
you know, crossover. And uh, that was the phrase that, that brought it, you know, to everyone's attention, that it was crossover. Mm. And that's how everything was being defined. But I think Andy did it a long, long before anything in the, in the music world, uh, you know, taking a silkscreen into fine art and making it, you know, because his base was uh, commercial art and illustration. So, um, it, to me, going to see this uh, legendary uh, exhibit of his of his work, you know, that it. Uh, includes like a 30-year scope of, of everything that he did. It's kind of uh, speaks of modern times, you know, and the idea of the, what we live with now is such a, a big scope. It's, you know, we're worldwide, we have a worldwide culture and it's becoming more and more integrated and uh, at the same time, uh, Oddly enough, separated because we're more we're more clear about what we are. It's like the vive la différence, you know. That's it. Um, we celebrate it and we enjoy it, and sometimes we tweak it in. And um, I think it gives us a sense of um, I don't know humanity, perhaps you know, better sense of humanity and appreciation of that. So Debbie Harry's memoir is it's an incredible book, actually. Mm-hmm. Every page is covered in art and illustration. And in fact, there are several sections in it where she's collected together all of the fan art that she's... Not all of it, but a selection of the fan art that she's been sent over the years. So all of these incredible portraits in different sort of artistic styles. Because um, she says, obviously, that, that it's the fans who make you who you are. And so mm-hmm. she would love to be able to sort of share their appreciation. Do you get a lot of fan art? No, nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Um, that's why I am a nothing, because in terms of fans making you who you are, you need some. And so you end up a, a non-person. So, uh, yeah, that, that's that's how I sit. I'm going to sit at my desk this afternoon and make, some pictures. make the first piece of and Richard And occasionally um, threats, but nothing, nothing I would keep. I don't think I've ever been sent anything. Really? You must I have been. I think so. No, not like art. Oh, okay. No. You know, cease and desist letters, that kind of thing. <laughs> that kind of thing. Legal instruments. Complaints. Yeah. A lot of complaints. <laughs> okay. Some complaints. And it was quite interesting what Debbie was saying there about that sort of, that time in New York, about how there was a lot of crossover between different forms of art and culture. They were all sort of coming together. And certainly when you look at the book and see these pictures, you know, she stood there with Basquiat and Andy Warhol and the Ramones and stuff like that. It just seems like it was an amazing time to be alive, you know, to yes. be part of that thing. Do you get to sort of have a bit of cross-pollination yourself with the different projects and people that you work with? Um, I meet regularly with um, the postman. Um, I see them and I have a very good relationship with our DHL um, courier. <laughs> and very often, even if I'm just come, I'm cycling back, he knows, I know the parcels for me. I've ordered some stuff late at night. I wanted to feel alive. And that is coming to me. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's very similar to Basquiat, um, Warhol, <laughs> my kind of life. It's very exciting. Peckham, Peckham-based life. It's the new New York. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to stay stateside, actually, for our next author. We so should. 
Gia Tolentino, she's one of uh, that generation who has sort of grown up with the internet. And so her book, Trick Mirror, is a collection of incredible essays, actually, that look at subjects like the internet and reality TV, social media, life as a millennial. Amidst all of this sort of, I guess, cacophony of, of modern culture, I spoke to her about how we got here uh, and where she finds solace. All social networks, they like their economic model is making money on us performing our ideas of ourselves for each other, right? And that's our voluntary participation. And beyond that level, even like my boyfriend has never been on any social media whatsoever. His identity has still been sold and resold a million times. Just his 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 use of the web has been tracked by all of the the cookies on all of the websites. It's like the whole internet, the entire economic engine of it is just monetized selfhood. Figuring out who we are is important. And it's like one of the central projects of being alive. And when it's turned into the internet itself and everything else is routed through this medium of monetized selfhood, it is going to be the bedrock of what culture is like, you know, and, and we're seeing already how much it is determining politics, like both in the UK and the US. Like it's, it's, it's not just a cultural thing. It's a real structural, um, it's, it, it's sort of what I, I think of it is if we are giving this up to the market, then we've given everything to it. And it's, it's, it's just as much an indication of how, the world is changing under late capitalism as it is of anything about, you know, like our personalities or our desires. Self-improvement is an idea that's inherently pleasurable and it's inherently punishing, right? To understand your yourself and your life and for women, especially your body as a source of potential is a really, it can be, it can feel like freedom and it can feel like a prison and it's, and it will always feel like both, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that this, the idea of you work 13 hours a day and you don't have time to make yourself lunch and you so you pay for a $15 salad and it gives you the nutrients you need to continue working another eight hours that day and that job allows you to make the money that you know allows you to buy the salad in the first place and it just goes on and on forever I think there's also a cultural way in which this has been spun as the good life and because I think self-improvement is it's, it's, again, one of these tendencies that's built into our lives, and it's not necessarily bad, but when it's made mandatory, and when it is, again, when it becomes this, I think there are, I think of a lot of industries as optimization industries, which it's like the whole wellness industry is like this, something that will help you adapt to conditions of sort, sort of arbitrary agony and overwork. There are a lot of, like, one could say that, that, all of the ascendant millennial era businesses like Airbnb and Uber and Amazon and, you know, like Goop and, you know, tons of things for women. They are all like this. They are things that help you eke out comfort and survival as, you know, labor protections are stripped away and, you know, work hours get longer and every corner of your life is monetized. You know, these industries provide like a tiny bit of convenience and relief. Well, I do think we're on a downward spiral for sure. <laughs> I, um, but I don't know. Like there, there is like the question of like what is the answer is. It's one thing for my life, and it's another for yours, right? It's the answer adjusts according to the freedoms and the needs that we individually have in any context at any given time, right? I used Amazon for a while because I was making no money. I needed, or I thought that I needed, to save five dollars at a time, and you know, to save myself 20 minutes at a time so I could work more and eventually make more money, right? 
I started making more money, then I stopped using Amazon, right? The, the answer is always contextual. It's, it's what, I, I do think it starts with understanding, let's say you are on the optimization treadmill. Um, I think the question, it is important to ask, what are you doing it for? And if you're doing it for a reason that's more important than self-improvement itself, then that matters. And if you're not, then that matters. And everyone just, I think that, I mean, I didn't even consider trying to tell people how to live in this book because everyone, again, is just going to do what they want to do anyway. And so I think that for everyone, there is a way through all of these situations. There's not a way out, but there's a way through that does probably involve conscious evaluation of why we do the things we do and what freedoms are available to us at this given time in our specific context to undermine them or use them to more to our advantage or reject them altogether. And it'll always be different for every person depending on what they're looking at and what they want. I have always been just a very, very, very compulsive reader and an insomniac. And so I read, you know, I just read constantly. I read you know, I read a book yesterday, like I, and I'm on book tour, I did 12 hours of interviews yesterday and I read a book, like, you know, start to finish before I went to bed. I, I'm just like this. It's not really, it's not a conscious act of rejecting connectedness, you know, it's more just genuinely that's what's always brought me pleasure and I'm extremely pleasure oriented in the way that I move about the world. Even with the internet, I'm pretty pleasure oriented with it. I I do, I do lean on books as a way of I've always read like a paper book for an, an hour or so before I go to bed. And it's a reminder of how much better I feel when my attention isn't being, um, you know, pulled in a million directions and also just rendered visible to a, a separate force, like the privacy of reading a book and the singular, like the, the singularity of it, where it's just, it's just a book. It's nothing else. It's not, the book doesn't also have email. It's just books. I also get a lot of pleasure out of, you know, like a Robin album or a meme or, you know, it's like there's, I don't think the internet forecloses depth and meaning in any way. Like in a lot of ways, like the internet has led me to some of my favorite books and, you know, um, some of my favorite older books. And it's led me to the friends that have recommended some of my favorite older books. And it really, the internet's intertwined with like the most offline pleasures, the internet's still part of them, right? It's been one of my missions this year to learn more about my physical surroundings. And so I got a plant identifier app. Amazing. <laughs> and it, you know, and it's like, I don't feel that there's a conflict there. Like it's, it's, you know, there's an irony maybe, you know, but it's, <laughs> but it's, you know, the internet is part of my love of, of reading books all the time. And, you know, and, and that being an offline thing, it's still, you know, the internet's really intertwined with everything, which is part of the reason that I, think it's so important to understand correctly where do we begin Richard well I'm pleased she stayed on brand by mentioning goop she's brought us full circle right we've come back to Paltrow we've come all roads lead back to Paltrow and the I wellness is interesting because I don't know what the nest does at the end of the word well Mm. I always feel if you asked her Gwyneth this is are you well would she say I have wellness um (laughs) Also, the vaginal eggs are non-returnable. Yeah. But to me, I always felt they should only be non-returnable if you've used them. Yeah. But like anything. Mm, Yeah. If anything has been inside you, (laughs) keep it. 
it's it's a very it's good a, point. It's a rule of thumb for me. I don't me. know how you would establish Inclu- that you hadn't used it or mm. or had. I don't know. I think at this stage, you've got to rely on humanity. Because it's like sixty dollars or something, isn't it? This egg. Yes, I don't know how much it is now. Um, Probably more. But there are two two types. Yeah. Uh, one's eleven dollars more than the other. I think spring for the extra eleven dollars if it's yeah. If for an internal item, you don't want to be skimping. But, yeah, invest. You know a lot about this. I know a lot about goop. Yes, I also know about the kid calming mist, uh, which um, is if if your child is presumably not calm, it's sort of like a very low intensity riot cannon. It sounds like, and there's also a, a psychic repellent spray, um, which I find strange because, say you know. People are getting in your aura. How like us right now? You've, yeah. you've got a spray, but you're in your aura. You're spraying outside of your aura. How you're you're obviously violating your aura with the spray. Yeah. Um, there's just some metaphysical things. As a parent yourself, Richard, sure. you must surely feel as I do that one way to enrage a child would be to spray water in their face. Kid calming mist. If a kid no, calming mist. Complete, you calling it water? Oh, just sorry. Show, just shows. How haters operate, quite frankly. It's a mist. Okay. Okay. In this mist is probably an alkaline mist. It's been neutralized. It's probably very gently scented. It's, um, who knows what kind of wellness benefits this mist can have. So let's not dismiss it until we've bought it. We are going to hear now from our booksellers. So they're going to take this theme of culture and they're going to give us some lovely book recommendations. Uh, Get your pen and paper ready, obviously, to make notes. Uh, And remember that whatever it is you are looking for, it always pays to ask a bookseller. Hi, I'm Martha from Sheffield. And the book I'd recommend on the theme of culture is A Field Guide to Getting Lost by Rebecca Solnit. It's a book that takes in everything from map making to Hitchcock and the joy of wandering. And because of it, I'll never look at the colour blue in the same way again. Hi, I'm Katrina from Glasgow. My recommendation on the topic of culture is Olivia Lang's The Lonely City. In it, she takes an element of traditionally high culture art and she uses it to punctuate her story in New York. And for me, it was the first time that I thought art and culture was about being able to see what it, how it made you feel and it wasn't about what other people thought was good or bad and that was a huge thing for me. Hi I'm Emily from Barnsley and on the theme of culture I would recommend Lavinia Greenlaw's The Importance of Music to Girls because music is the nexus of all culture and this is a fabulous memoir that's honestly utterly perfect. She said, if I had not kissed anyone or danced with anyone or had reason to cry, the music made me feel as if I had gone through all that anyway. It's a perfect explanation of what it's like to find your identity through music and how to make friends and connect with ideas and people. It's perfect. And so we've reached the end of this episode. Holly, have you got anything you'd like to add? It's just that we haven't been able to talk about ABBA yet. ABBA? Mm, cultural <sighs> icons. Okay. Like, maybe next season maybe next season season right. three we can get to ABBA have you it, been trying to talk about ABBA for a while uh, I try every episode okay and you sh- you just shut it down I don't I'm, I'm not into shutting things down at all it's okay. it, it, your cultural touchstone is ABBA is that right mm. yeah. yeah I think ABBA will make a, a return I'm sure maybe a return in what do you mean the, the best selling uh, 
No, I don't mean them. You mean within the I podcast? I mean within the podcast, yeah. Okay. Thank you for the defending me. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, was important. Right. I mean, we what's all know that ABBA have never gone away. Thank never you. Gone. Yeah. What's your favourite ABBA song? Uh, Happy Hawaii. Okay. I can see why you haven't brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> you, our listeners, of course, can actually help influence what will appear in season three because we would like to hear from you about what themes we should cover. You can do that by sending us an email. So you can send us an email on social at waterstones.com. Uh, and do please, of course, spread the word on our little shots of culture if they are pleasing your ears. Next week, we're going to be dealing with another C word, which is community. We'll be speaking to Anne Patchett, Jason Reynolds, Amru Alkadi and Zing Cheng. But until then, from all of us here, goodbye. Farewell. Goodbye. Am I going to get the spike in sales I've been promised? Absolutely. Okay. Okay.